You've tuned into all things fine and gentry with the connoisseur, French Thompson, where consistently we bring you ideas, concepts, and exposure to thoughtful content, lifestyle enhancements, and opportunities to improve yourself and those around you. Thank you for tuning in and taking a listen to this week's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to All Things Fine and Gentry. This is the connoisseur, French Thompson, and I thank you so much for joining me this week and every week as we go along here. But, you know, it's just it's extra special for you all to tune in and take a listen. And to all of our first time listeners, uh, welcome. Um, we would love for you to like, share, subscribe, become a part of this listening audience to whom I wish to whom which I call the connoisseurs. So all of the uh, all of our returning listeners, those that are subscribed, et cetera, the connoisseurs, thank you all for your support. And uh, we're almost to nine thousand downloads since we started this podcast. So uh, appreciate you all really tuning in, uh, loving it. And this is all over the world. We get love all over the world and uh, appreciate all of those things. So pleasantries out the way. We are in the middle of our the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, and I'm excited about this interview as I am every week. Uh, but but this 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 man, this gentleman, is uh, somebody that I've been uh, connected with uh, for a while here, and we always end up having like really intense conversations, but like in a 10 minute span because we're always either at a wedding or having brunch after an event or something like that. And it's like, man, we just need to kind of get together and chat. And uh, and so as we kind of talk through it, you'll see how we're connected and go from there. But I'll start off uh, introducing Mr. Brandon Hodges. Brandon, welcome to the podcast today. French, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, I appreciate you for being on. I bring it on. All right. So um, as we typically do as part of the podcast, we give our uh, listening audience or our, our uh, guest uh, an opportunity to just kind of introduce themselves, kind of where are you from, uh, where you went to school, uh, you know, what you do now, where you live now. We're just kind of digging into, uh, you know, at a high level um, for the introduction, but we'll kind of dig into it a little bit more uh, specifics as we go from there. So tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. Sure. So again, Brandon Hodges, great to be with everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, so born and raised in the South. Um, attended University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, for undergrad, um, where I studied business administration. Um, after school, moved back to Charlotte, where I was from for a couple of years, um, went into banking, and then kind of pivoted, you know, in the first couple of years into commercial real estate. And so that took me to Washington, D.C., um, where I lived for about six years. Um, and so was doing a bunch of low-income housing uh, and affordable housing development and lending up in that kind of Northeast region, um, up and down the East coast. And so, uh, lived there for a while. Um, but then I, you know, thought, what else could I be doing? You know, I, you know, lending is a pretty straightforward pathway in terms of career trajectory. So ended up going back to uh, business school. And so that brought me to the Midwest, um, and attended university of Michigan, um, where I got my MBA and then kind of segued over to Detroit. And so that's where I currently reside with my wife and our uh, two two-year-old golden doodles. So I'm in Detroit, Michigan, uh, just trying to help, you know, kind of build the city back up, so to speak. So this is interesting. Um, so first, obviously, since it's a hot topic, how do you feel about all the drama that's surrounding UNC right now? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to watch it from afar, um, yeah. you know, being alumni there. It's, you know, being from the South, I think those those things are always well known, right? Yeah. I think higher education, especially in the South, is, you know, governed by a certain, you know, crust of people. And I, and I think that has been the case for, you know, a while now. So it's not entirely surprising to see, you know, some of the stuff with Hannah Nicole Jones. And, you know, I'm, you know, kudos to her for, you know, just finding places where you feel valid and validated. And so, you know, it was unfortunate to hear and to see it play out the way it did, but it wasn't entirely surprising. This is line of question wasn't even anywhere on my list, but a question I have is, so, you know, I went to Morehouse undergrad, right. And then, uh, you know, went, went to Michigan. So, you know, had this, uh, you know, HBCU experience and a PWI experience, but uh, for you going to UNC, uh, like you said, it wasn't surprising, but did you feel that there was any, uh, I don't want to call it, you know, discrimination, but do you feel that the the black students on campus were treated less than uh, just in light of everything that's going on there? Or do you feel that you had a, a pretty good support system to kind of pursue your passions and your dreams while you were there? You know, I think it's a bit of both. I think. You know, I was lucky in that, and I think a lot of Black students are at UNC to the extent that they choose to, to, you know, opt into this. There's a great support system for, you know, Black and Brown students. And I think that that has been the case for a number of years because of the fact that we are the minority on a predominantly white campus. And I think, you know, there's so many different examples of this throughout, and you probably have experienced this in Michigan, but I think there are safe havens that you seek. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the administration knows very well what students are coming into. And I think it's been a lot of administrators who are professors, you know, who have said, let's take the opportunity to create these spaces because without it, it's going to impact the matriculation of all these students. Yeah. You know, we have a, a level of attrition anyway in school. Um, and I think you would see that, you know, at a higher rate had it not been for some of these safe spaces. So, Black cultural centers, African-American studies majors, you know, different cultural centers, those are needed. I mean, just, you know, for retention, for peace of mind and for, you know, being in a safe space. That's good. That's good. Which is actually, it's funny because we're going to kind of dive into your perspective on that anyway. So uh, let's get back to your major and, and what you essentially started to do coming out of school. <clears throat> is that what you kind of saw yourself doing or how did you get into saying I wanted to go into commercial real estate and lending. How, how did you kind of get into that that sphere in your mind? Like this is the, the path that I want to pursue. Sure. So if initially my mom was like, yo, you got to go get a job. <laughs> like you got to, you need to get a business degree or something. Like you can't be an artist or, you know I mean? Like it was just, you know, she's very traditional. My family, you know, you know, comes from a, a certain, you know, time period where college was the way. And I think that, you know, I heeded that call and I was like, you know, let me go get a business degree or something where I can feel like I can make some money, make my parents proud, you know, so on and so forth. And so did that and worked it ironically, like Bank of America was my first gig. And then the world stopped. It was like 2008, (laughs) 2009. And you look up one day and this is like when you hear stories that your grandparents tell you, like the world just shifted. I was like, Mm. you know, whole industries were like gone. I mean, like banking like home equity lines like the mortgage department that i was supporting just like evaporated overnight because of the recession so it was kind of a blessing in disguise and that provided the opportunity for me to consider going into affordable housing development Mm. um because it was a much needed industry and even more so needed at the time just given you know what had happened and so 
I saw a post in an internal posting at the bank. And mind you, I was still in Charlotte at the time. And I was like, well, you know, there's not a lot popping off in Charlotte anymore. Right now. <laughs> Let me uh, think about this DC area and what that opportunity could provide. And, you know, kind of the rest is history. I, you know, I took the opportunity, went up and interviewed and the team was, you know, I, you know, an all black team, which I had never seen before. Yeah. And it was, you know, very intelligent people, just like just rock stars. And so I was like, yeah, let me let me see what this can do. And so, yeah, that's how I got into uh, commercial real estate. So coming from Charlotte and, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm from D.C. and you know went mm -hmm. to uh, Morehouse. So you know, D.C. to Atlanta, um, we passed through Charlotte. Right. I mean, going on trips or going to visit people. Um, what was that like for you to make that transition from Charlotte to D.C.? And then now, I mean, to Detroit, to where, you know, you, you kind of have various spectrums of uh, affluency in the African-American culture. Uh, what was that like for you? Because, I mean, when when I met you, like your family seemed very tight knit, you know, very well. Like, hey, this is I don't say this is the plan. This is what we're doing. But, you know. You come from a, a, a family that has, you know, has values and has promoted, you know, you uh, and the rest of your, your family to be you know successful. Um, but I would assume that, you know, was that the norm in Charlotte or just your circle? And did you see something different when you went to D.C. kind of even the same way you said, hey, this is the first black team uh, from a corporate perspective that you worked on? No, it's an interesting question, you know. In Charlotte, when I first got into banking, of course, you know, it was kind of an anomaly to see a black person. And I yeah. think that, you know, whether it be financial services or technology or real estate, I mean, name the vertical and industry and that's typically somebody's story. Right. So I think the biggest culture shock was just going from a southern city to a, uh, you know, a, a northeastern city, right. for, you know, example. So the density, the the amenities, you know, it was just a different environment in general. And, you know, going to D.C., which was still, I guess you would call it chocolate city at the time, was <laughs> um, it was great to just see like a lot of black people, a lot of black professionals, a lot of black entrepreneurs who didn't go to college. Like it, it was a hotbed of everybody. Yeah. And that was like a first for me. And while I had a, a really, really tight circle in Charlotte, don't get it wrong. Um, it's it was Charlotte's an extremely diverse city, but it's still a very southern city, right? Mm. It's kind of surrounded by the South. It's a pretty cosmopolitan area, but it's still you know where you are. Yeah. And so DC was just a just a cultural shock on a different level in a good way for me. Um, and you know, in terms of my family, I think that was the <laughs> my mom is always like, you know, what are you doing? Like you have a very comfortable situation. <laughs> Why are you gonna like risk this to go and do something that you don't even you don't know if you're going to like it. You don't know the people like what, you know, what are you doing? And so it's been interesting and nuanced having kind of conversations with her and my dad, because again, they come from a different generation. Like yeah. you just don't up and move. Right. I think, you know, seeing my friends now, like we, we will go cross country in a heartbeat if the right opportunity is there. Yeah. Um, that's just not something that I think a lot of black families have experienced necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, migration aside, like, it's a it's just a different environment now and so we we're getting different opportunities we're seeing different things we're traveling more and a lot of that started for me when i was in dc that's good that's good um so while you're in dc like you say you really start looking at affordable housing and and, and you know looking at real estate differently um beyond the uh the real estate 
the recession, the Great Recession, essentially. Um, you know, what else did you see that kind of, I would say, let the fuse or or the light bulb went off in your head and saying, this is the pivot that I need to make, or this is what I want to do to to make a difference uh, in this in this environment. Yeah, I think it came from this kind of epiphany moment where I was looking around at all the, so I was in a lending capacity. So all my, my business basically was lending money to rich and wealthy developers mm-hmm. who were building affordable housing. And you start to realize like there's this odd dichotomy between the people who own affordable housing and the people that live in affordable <laughs> housing. And there, I mean, I could say much more about that, but I think you bring a certain sensitivity to the business model if you either experienced it or you know people who live in it. That's and good. I thought that there was just such a, there's such a disconnect between that ownership structure and what was happening at the property level day to day. And I was like, there's something missing here. And I thought that, I mean, to me, that was empowering because I was like, you know, I can bring a different level of intentionality and just a different perspective, not because I had experienced affordable housing, but because I know that there's more there. It's at a human scale, like there's people involved. And I think that mentality, you know, has kind of fueled me in the development space because I've, I've since pivoted from lending and financing of developments to like building them and like coordinating, you know, land deals and like stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I've never forgotten the fact that people live places and it's, it's shelter, it's stability. It, it means so many different things to people. And it's not just transactional. You know, it, it, it has that flavor. But at the end of the day, you're talking about people's, you know, homes and livelihood. That's so good. So, you know, Catherine, uh, you know, as a part of our plan is, is to, you know, get into real estate, you know, at the residential level, you know, get several doors, et cetera. But there's so many podcasts out here, Bigger Pockets, Black Wealth Renaissance, Earn Your Leisure, you know, all of these different ones that really talk about real estate investing, et cetera. Um, and you hear a lot about, you know, how many doors you have, et cetera. But it, it's very interesting for you to put that nuanced point on there, like to never forget, like, especially when it comes to you know, multifamily housing, affordable housing that, you know, it's more than a transaction. It is the the people that live there, et cetera. Um, you, you made a point of stating that. And so my question is, do you see that that is something that is lacking in the real estate development world? Um, uh, this connection to the tenant, this connection to those that are actually living in there? Or do you feel that uh, the, the tide is turning a, a tad bit that people are being a little bit more uh, uh, sensitive to that point? Uh, you know, it's it, that's a nuanced question because I think at the, at the heart of it, you know, real estate is still an asset class, right? It's that's a trillion right. dollar business. Yep. And people are investing their capital to get a return, not necessarily because they want to be do-gooders or the altruism of it, right? So it's it's still, you know, a tried and true way of generating wealth. And that's important for a couple of reasons. I think one, you have to understand like what money attracts itself to that opportunity mm. in terms of institutional money, right? You're talking about pension funds, you know, like the credentials of the world, Bank of America is like all these, you know, investment banks, big banks, you know, people with liquid capital to invest and, in, you know, high net worth and wealthy individuals. And so that in itself kind of skews the way the business runs sometimes. And if you're in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, a lot of these, you know, saturated markets, that's kind of what you see. And I think for, you know, for myself, you know, being in Detroit, I see it in a different way because that institutional money hasn't really shown up yet. Yeah. Right. Which is a good, I mean, it's, it's a gift and a curse, right. Because I think that all the qualms about, you know, gentrification and people getting priced out of neighborhoods, 
that happens when people are seeking a return on their capital. And mm-hmm. if they, they're looking at where they can get it, right? They're, they're getting it in DC and these neighborhoods that are starting to turn around Howard University. I'm like, you know, <laughs> when I was in, I can't, I, and you probably know this, but like the um, area around Trinidad, like yes. your H, nobody would ever think like 10 years removed that you would have coffee shops and poodles up and down like Trinidad. Like it's, <laughs> it happens that fast because of, you know, the pressure for return. And so, you know, money typically moves faster than people. And that's just the truth. And so I say all that to say, like, there are great opportunities to marry both of those realities, because I do think that real estate has a huge impact. Well, I mean, it's probably the chief driver of the wealth gap now between you know, mm. blacks and whites just off top yeah you think about where black people were able to live and the places they were able to accrue value in their homes and it's, it just wasn't really available and you, you look at their counterparts and you see a 10 to 1 wealth gap yeah. all of a sudden right? Right. like that doesn't happen overnight and i think it's great that people are starting to learn more about real estate especially you know owning their own home but also owning multifamily and commercial real estate you know it's it's a means to generate wealth but i also think it's a means to stabilize neighborhoods. I think, you know, to my earlier point, if you can bring a level of intentionality to it and sensitivity to it, you can do great things in neighborhoods, right? You, you know, we talk about gentrification, but that wouldn't be as big of an issue if black people were actually benefiting from it. That's real. You know what I'm saying? Like if we were able to, you know, tap into the value that's been created or like if people were able to, you know, cash out and kind of put their money in other investments, you know, so on and so forth, you know, we, we have to start sharing that knowledge. And typically we just haven't been in the spaces to do so. So I'm, I'm glad that all these podcasts and just opportunities are there now for people to learn more about, you know, real estate in general. That's so good. So, so my first summer job, so I, when I came out of high school, I thought I was going to be a architectural engineer. So my first summer job was working mm-hmm. for uh DC department of uh, housing and urban development. Uh, and I worked uh, mm-hmm. under the, uh, he wasn't the chief architect of DC. I can't remember what his title was, but he was essentially over all of the uh, urban development in DC. And I remember riding with him going down Georgia Avenue. And he was like, yeah, the first stage is we're going to redo all these facades and then we're going to continue to kind of do all the development. And, and I mean, this is 2001. And he's like, you know, in 10 years, mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, a different neighborhood. Now for me, I'm like, like I actually wanted to get into urban development, like in urban renewal. That's what I was going to do, but it was still kind of so far removed for, for me because I remember 14th and you, I remember, you know, Georgia Ave mm-hmm. going up to Howard, going to the Banneker pool. I remember yep. the, the, you know what I mean? The AMPM across from the mayor's office in DC where like legit, it was crackheads right out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And now to your yep. point, right. You got, you got poodles and, you know, Lululemon <laughs> in yoga studios, right? Is it the, the cognitive dissonance every time I go back to D.C. is crazy because I'm like, this isn't the city I know, right? Or I knew, I will say that. Uh, and in some ways, it's great. In some ways, you're kind of like, man, where are all these people going that lived here, right? But you see it, right? Because they're all going out to Southern right. Maryland, part of, you know, PG County, moving further and further out where they can find affordable housing which then displaces them from the jobs as well as the public transportation that existed to allow for them to get around and not have to own a car, you know, because they could take the the metro or the bus, et cetera. And so you start thinking about all these development policies and zoning and everything else that comes in here. And I mean, you, 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 it's 
you systemically perpetuate the same types of things that, you know, that happened back in the past. It's just this, it, it's one big machine, but that's just, that's, <laughs> I don't want to go too far into that, but all right. So, so let's talk, um, Detroit, right? So now you're in Detroit and you, you spoke about it, you know, the, the institutional investors haven't, haven't yet knocked on the doorstep to do all these things in Detroit. They're coming, but they haven't, you know, done what they did in DC or, you know, parts of Atlanta, or you look at, you know, things that's been happening in Baltimore or even parts of LA, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> where do you see in your eyes, you know, the opportunity? And then I want to kind of talk about some of the projects that you have, you know, recently completed and the ones you're working on, but, but I guess maybe I'll back up. What do you think is unique about Detroit? Cause we, you have a wife that's from, from, you know, Flint, my wife's from Detroit. You live literally mm -hmm. in the, in the neighborhood and that my, my wife's you know, family part of family is from half her family. What is yep. it about Detroit? That's so unique, uniquely different, <laughs> I would say <laughs> than other cities that, you know, it has just this, this different vibe to it. Um, overall, what, what have you seen and felt being an outsider now, a resident? Yeah, Detroit is unlike any place that I've ever been in my life. And I say that in a lot of different regards because it's an American city. Yeah. It was the pinnacle of America for, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And today you kind of see the, the, the decline in the built environment, right? Mm. You see what happens when entire industries either uplift and move or just evaporate yeah. and not that auto has evaporated, literally just went to the suburbs. Right. <laughs> and I think you know, globalization hit and, you know, you know, Oakland County, which surrounds Detroit is still, I think the fourth wealthiest County in the country. So it's not like the values and the, the money left per se, it just went down the street. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the troubling part about that is, I mean, if, if anybody knows Detroit, there's a kind of a storied racial history in, of the city that, you may not have always heard about. I mean, you may have heard about the rebellion of 67, but until you get here and you start to see this thing yeah. and feel it, it's very, it's a very palpable thing. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so you have to reconcile the truth of what that means as a, a truly black city. I mean, like Detroit is a truly, what I would say, one of the last truly black cities and thinking about what that city wants to be in the future. And mm -hmm. when I say the future, I mean like tomorrow, but I mean today, I mean like 20, 30 years from now. And the strategy for tomorrow is not the same strategy for 20 and 30 years down yeah, the road. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing that I'm reconciling right now is, you know, what are the things that need to happen sequentially, you know, from a capital perspective, from a municipal focus perspective, like what are the things that need to happen to make this city great again? Not, not to say that it's not great. It's just, it's different. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a different city than what it once was. And you have a lot of black people that just don't have a lot of opportunity here. And I think that's sad to see day in day out because, you know, when I first heard about Detroit, it was all about Motown and auto, but then it was about bankruptcy, but it was nothing in between. It was like, <laughs> you know, it was, it was those three facts. Right. <laughs> it was like, I knew they had like three sports teams and I was like, that's cool. But it, it's such a rich city of history and culture that doesn't get exported to the rest of the country. That's good. Um, in terms of like that narrative. And I think I've had to learn, I've learned and unlearned a lot of things being in Detroit. One about just the history of the city, but also about my, my real estate career. Like I've had to unlearn a lot of 
preconceived things that I learned in real estate that just don't hold true all the time. That's good. <laughs> like, like Detroit has shown me like the model doesn't always work. And I think that's, that was an important thing for me to see. Um, so I, I have a lot of reverence for Detroit. I, I love the city. It's a challenge city. And, you know, I can't state that enough, but there's a lot of good things happening here. Um, and I'm glad that a lot of black people are at the forefront of, you know, especially development, you know, real estate for sure, but there's still a lot of opportunity here and, you know, it's, it's growing, it's getting better, you know, day by day. That's good. That's man. Like legit. When you were kind of describing it, I was thinking about the, the you know, countless trips, uh, through Detroit, visiting family with my wife and just driving neighborhoods. Like you say, you feel it, right? You, mm-hmm. it, it, and it, it is not like the, the streets are, are haunted, but you, you, it's kind of metaphysical that you can feel the history. You can feel the sure. uh, the redlining. You can feel all of it just just there. And in some ways, it's like a city that's crying to be crying out to be recognized as well as uh, revitalized. But um, but that's mm-hmm. that's that's real. All right. So let's let's talk about the Obama. Uh, you know, one of your developments here. Let's let's talk about that and kind of how that came together and, and your, your vision uh, with your team on it and, and uh, kind of how that that fits into your uh, vision of Detroit uh, uh, tomorrow as well as 20 years from now. Sure. So the Obama building was, I call it a neighborhood anchored building and project because it is, it's one of the, I won't say the only, but it's, it's one of the few projects recently that have been developed adjacent to a true neighborhood in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Like typically you see the path of growth and development in Detroit is typically kind of midtown, downtown, now, you know, Corktown for anybody who's familiar with the city of Detroit, but it's, it's where there's a lot of corporate presence or, you know, education presence via Wayne state or, um, you know, Quicken loans downtown. Mm-hmm. And so this is a truly, truly neighborhood project. And I completed this project as the uh, developer with the last company I was with. And I actually left that company in January of this year. So it was, it was kind of bittersweet, like that being kind of like the wrap up project from my experience, but it was, it was great because it proved that it could be done. And I think the challenge in Detroit, you know, like a lot of other cities is just the values haven't kept pace in the neighborhoods. Um, You know, when we look at very, very dense urban areas, the values are just there because it's hyper dense area and there's just market comps everywhere. Like stuff sells all the time. Right. And it's like new stuff has not generally been built in mass in the past like, 30, 40 years. So it's hard to, you know, convince a lender, for example, that this area has a redeeming quality that would seek new capital, for example. And so it was great to kind of push that project over the finish line. It was, it was extremely difficult to capitalize. Just, you know, there was a bunch of funding sources that needed to come to the table you know, some philanthropic, some private capital, some bank capital. Um, but the the best thing I think that came out of it was this like really rich community engagement process that actually, that's how the building got its name. It was, um there was a mural that one of the local artists had painted and it was the inauguration dance of Barack and Michelle. <laughs> so it's, um, it, it's like a very, you know, poetic kind of scene, but it, I mean, the building was you know, it was totally in disrepair, but it was the first thing you kind of see at the corner. And it was just like very like, you know, magical. And so as we took the, the we had to take the mural down to construct the thing or redevelop the thing, we offered up to the community. We were like, so how do you guys want this building to be named? Like, how do you want it to be remembered forever? 
And I was like, it's not necessarily as important about the specific name, but what's the sentiment? Like, what do you feel about it? That's like, what, what is it? Why does it matter to you? And so they're like, well, like we had like affectionately called it the Obama building all the time. They're like, do we have to change that? And we're like, nah, <laughs> that's, that's, that means so much to people. And I think you, you, we both understand why it's that, that moment was so magical for black people in this country, you know, for most black people. And so, you know, it gives them a signal of hope. It gives them a signal of change, like all the things that were synonymous with that, you know, kind of election and that campaign. Um, so it was really cool that the community got to kind of weigh in on that. And so, you know, another you know, really interesting thing is that we, this is a difficult thing to pull off in most cities, but the community actually voted via a neighborhood advisory group on all the retail wow. that went into the building. Wow. And, and you know why this is problematic or tricky <laughs> to pull out <laughs> just because you got to make the numbers make sense. You got to make sure that there's a, a a pipeline of entrepreneurs and businesses that can actually go into the building. And so you kind of, that pool gets smaller and smaller. You give people more voices. But I think from a business standpoint, it's like, why wouldn't you want the community to support or know that what they are going to get in their community is something that they champion. Exactly. And that was the most important thing, right? It was, we know that this is stuff that is not going to be at odds with the community. You're not going to see, you know, another liquor store. You're not going to see, you know, you know, a vice business per se. So let's figure out what the community wants, what they need and what's feasible. And let's try to, you know, triangulate and get to the center of that. That's what's up. That's what's up. All right. So I want to ask one more kind of business question. I want to pivot to, uh, some of your uh, extraordinary gentleman qualities here. Um, <laughs> so we're kind of at a pinnacle moment, right? These last year, this last year and a half, last two years has, you know, really heightened uh, you know, black support, black lives matter, black businesses, et cetera. Right. And so, like I said, we're kind of at this pinnacle moment of people are really buying black people are really just, you know, supporting, uh, and then on top of that, you know, use that juxtaposition, the network that you have between UNC living in DC, going to U uh, University of Michigan, uh, you know, et cetera. You're, you're surrounded by so many. And I mean, the way that, I mean, we're, we're connected two ways, one with, with your wife and my wife are our sorority sisters, but then, you know, we get connected again at your rehearsal dinner. I'm one of your groomsmen is a guy that I've, I've known for years. Um, and so we start thinking about social circles and, you know, degrees of separation. You really start to see how your network, you know, is similar in so many ways. So so as you look at kind of the trend we are now, where do you think we collectively as um, black businesses, black professionals, entrepreneurs, uh, et cetera, uh, you know, where do you see us going? Do you, do you think that this is. A, a pivotal moment to where, you know, things are changing, uh, especially with black professionals and, and investments and things like that? Or do you think that there still needs to be, um, you know, some more catalyst uh, in this mix that that really propels us to where um, we have a, a larger voice in this, you know, in this sphere of influence? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I think it's a mix of both. You know, I think I've been extremely happy to see some of the progress, you know, that a lot of the, I mean, unfortunately, I'd say that a lot of the, the happenings of the past, I mean, the stuff has been going on forever, yeah. but, you know, the stuff that's been around for, you know, the past six, seven years is causing more dialogue in spaces that I don't think it was previously present. Like, I'll give you an example. My 
the company that I, I left in January, it's, you know, majority white company. And, you know, it, it resonated in a way with our, our CEO. And so, of course, as the, the black guy at the, <laughs> the white company, you got to like kind of eat the, the lived experience of all black people and regurgitate it to like <laughs> you know, make it somewhat like palatable for people to understand like where you sit. And I'm like, it gave me the opportunity to actually reconcile my own feelings about how everything was going down because I was, I'm in that company specifically, I was constantly at odds around, you know, how do I show up authentically, give my perspective, try to mind the balance of not offending and not casting blame, but also driving the point that this could and should be different. And there are meaningful things that we can do as an organization, as our, you know, as the principles of our company, we can make a better lived experience environment in the city of Detroit and for the people that we touch and impact, right? So I think it's giving a lot of, I I hope, you know, I'm just using my anecdotal experience, but I hope it's giving a lot more black and brown people and organizations and outside of organizations that voice and that confidence to kind of articulate these, these thoughts, right? And you brought up a question about, you know, is this just a moment really, I think. And so I would say that it's tricky because when you look at companies, for example, companies are, they're marketers, right? (laughs) They're master marketers. That's what they do. So of course, they're going to say what needs to be said to the right audience at the right time to, you know, kind of appease the moment. And I think where we need to be pushing is, you know, of course, like representation is always important, but I think representation in the decision-making roles, right? Because what I noticed is that, and this came out of a really interesting talk with my former CEO, he, as much as he kind of has sway over his you know, company right now, his sway is not the same in his peer circle. Mm. So I say that to say, what is the CEO telling the other CEOs when they get together? <laughs> what does that conversation look like? You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't, I mean, many times we're not privy to the real dialogues that are happening about these issues. We're just the ones articulating it to whoever's above us, yes. right? And so yes. you don't know the real about some of this stuff. And I think, we, I mean, you kind of do know the real because some stuff is changing, some stuff's not. And so, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to just, you know, get a little bit more, you know, get more granular around the things in companies. And I, and I speak about corporate America specifically about that. Um, one thing I am encouraged about is just the level of transaction and business that we're be, we're able to do amongst ourselves, like That's our good. peers. Yeah. Like you mentioned, the network is amazing. Like I, I want to see us do more horizontally. You know, I think like East Race or something like this, like you need to look side by side and to your left and to your right. You don't always need to look up. Like That's you don't good. always need that validation point from like a decision maker per se, when you can do, like, we all know that we can do. It's a matter of like creating our own systems and just learning like the, the, the idiosyncrasies of transacting with one another. Like that's just, that's still very new for black people to some degree, like to, to invest in a black company, to invest in one of your friend's companies. There's still rules to this stuff, right? It's not just a, a thing that you do because it's the altruistic thing to do. We want to all benefit from it, you know, mission-wise, capital-wise, whatever. But there are best practices to do it, and I think we got to learn. We got to learn the tricks of the trade for sure. But we—that's a product of just like getting the reps. So I hope that it just you know spurs more commerce amongst you know black people in general. That's good. That's there's so many points in there, and man, like so one of the things that that has been so awesome about uh, this podcast, um, you know, we're 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 just a year old now, but being able to interview so many people I'm connected with that are black business owners or professionals, you know, uh, 
at the beginning of the year, I had a guy that I went to Morehouse with who's in private equity, right? In venture capital. And, and he's mm-hmm. a part of a, a, a black owned private equity firm. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he's, we talked a lot about those things. Um, you know, obviously you're doing commercial real estate. I know a couple of other people that are doing commercial real estate um, and, and are, you know, really, you know, expanding these things. You know, people that are doing residential, you know, creators, you know, uh, content creators, you know, entrepreneurs, all these things. You kind of sit back. It's like, man, like you said, we, we know how to do it, but because we have mm-hmm. not we have not had the reps that others have had in regards to generationally doing business with each other, creating business partners, having resources uh, and building that trust. Right. That uh, not only relational trust, but that business trust with one another. And the, there's mm-hmm. there's so much that we have to learn as well as unlearn about working with each other and trusting each other um, so that we all can be successful. Um, I I definitely believe that there's been a lot of a misconception, either uh, uh, actual or placed upon us in regards to work ethic, uh, you know, black businesses, et cetera, that we even as black people need to unlearn uh, so that we can create mm-hmm. our own ideas about what it means to be in business and work with each other so that we can essentially create, generate uh, and and uh, expand wealth uh, amongst ourselves. And so um, that was really good. You kind of put that point in there. Yeah. I think you, you touched on something, though. And before we leave this business yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of segment, Go ahead. I think it's, you said it, but you didn't use this word and this perceived risk. And I think that's something that we have got to start unlearning and stop the, the way that people perceive risk when it's a black person behind the venture is always heightened in this, you know, in, in this country, right? It's, we could be with the same degrees, the same experience, probably more so mm. the same reps through companies, but we are always perceived to be a riskier bet. And that's even within our own community. Like, right. and I think your point, we have to start understanding how to get over that, but we also have to start picking that apart. Like there's there's ways of saying like, hey, that's not right. But then we have to like say, what is the intrinsic risk to this person? What's the extrinsic risk to like the market, whatever the case may be. And you can you can explain risk away. Like that's the thing. Like right. you can explain it with a very logical approach. And so I think that we just have to get to the place where we're like consistently looking past that narrative. Like you're saying, it's 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 there unfortunately, but you know, that shouldn't be the way that we always frame investing or doing business with other black people that's good that's good Ooh. we're gonna have to have a panel with uh, <laughs> with some folks and let's just talk about that that's real good all right so uh, i'll pivot to the next section um kind of with this that every extraordinary gentleman ha- has to have uh an outlet right a- an alternative um to their day-to-day grind and, you know, obviously, for, obviously, at least for ones that may follow you on social or connect with you, they see that as art. But I didn't know some of the story behind it until you're you had talked about your mom, like, hey, you just can't be an artist. You gotta go do something with this. <laughs> talk about your history with art and then, you know, kind of talk about, you know, how you leverage it now uh, in, in your paintings and things like that and what that means to you in regards to to your life and, and uh, imbalance that you see. Yeah. So, you know, it's generational, right? I think there are certain generational things that even we as adults are still kind of like having to teach our parents. Mm. And it's just open dialogue, right? Like 
they were taught certain things because of necessity and because of circumstance and the world is the same in some regards, but it's still different. Like we all have our different paths. And so um, I've always been a doodler, you know, I was always sketching stuff and, you know, I just, I've loved art, you know, since I could pick up a pencil or, you know, sketch, whatever. And so it's always been something that I've done, but it wasn't like I went to art school, right? right. I, it wasn't like I had a formal training in it per se. Um, and, and it's been interesting because it's also, it throws people, right? Like when people know you in a certain environment and a certain profession, maybe, it's hard for them to reconcile the fact that you could be good at other things or like you have a passion for something else. And this is, well, I thought that was just like me. I was like, nah, this is like most of my friends have some creative outlet, right? Like people are creative now, whether they're good or not, that's you know <laughs> subject to interpretation, right? But I, you know, whatever. Um, but I think we all seek this kind of creative outlet in some form of fashion. Some people do it through painting like I do. Some people are, you know, artists in other ways. So I know a ton of people who are doing screenwriting or videography or podcasting, you know, or cooking, like the culinary arts are huge. Right. And so I think as black people, we've always had outlets, right. Yeah. We've, we've always had these outlets and, you know, some of them have been profitable and some of them have not been. And so I think you're, we've been steered and validated by some of these other avenues, but whatever. Um, I've always valued art. And I, and I think that it's helped me keep balance in my professional career. I think I can use a ton of just my creative instincts in real estate. You know, I, I do it from a, an activation perspective. I do it in terms of creative marketing strategies for getting tenants to my building, um, different types of programs and, you know, different types of tenants I want to attract. That's good. Um, it feeds off of each other. And I think as, you know, I've been able to show up recently, you know, as I've matured in my professional walk, I've been able to show up with that authentic self a lot more. And so people know that I paint and they, they're like, that's a really cool, like that's an asset as opposed to that's just kind of cool. Like, that's it's like, I can see how that can benefit the overall, you know, path that you're trying to chart for yourself. That's good. Which has been great. That's good. So you, you and I have two, two final questions here. First one, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times about being able to show up your authentic self. Um, and it's been a theme mm-hmm. that I've seen. Uh, definitely this year as part of the podcast, a lot of people that I've interviewed have, you know, had to evolve to the point that they're comfortable in presenting their authentic self. Um, how did you get there or how are you getting there in being able to be comfortable uh, in your skin externally, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I think part of it. <sighs> it was an evolution. Like, I don't want to make it seem like this just was like a light switch moment. It was being able to like, just be comfortable with your voice, you know, realizing when your voice has value and when your perspective has value. Um, And you, you get those, like we talk about reps, you get that as you mature and as you start to establish more, your non-negotiables, right? Mm -hmm. When I think about the spaces that I want to be relevant in, I know that those spaces have to respect me as a person and me as Brandon is the artist. It is the business person. It is the person who's super family involved. It is the guy with the golden dude. Like it's yeah. whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's the totality of who I am. And, you know, to be frank, I think it also made it easier because some of this stuff became profitable. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it, it literally validated itself by being, you know, it helped me become a better professional in the space that I was in. That's good. People saw that I was able to command a level of respect in the black community, or I was able to bring different tenants to the table, or I was able to have different conversations 
that they weren't able to have and push an agenda for like push a development project forward that they weren't able to push forward. Some of this is like, you know, just some kind of self-realization, but some of this is just, it, it makes sense because you're good at it and because it helps what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so real. whether that's professional or intrinsic, it, you know, both are relevant, right? I have to enjoy what I do day to day, but part of that is enjoying who I am when I show up to work and who I am when I leave work. And, you know, I think today I can truly say that I enjoy both of those people. That's what's up. That's real good. That's real good. That's a bow. You, you, you wrapped it right there, but I'm not going to let you go. So two very high level questions. Uh, occasionally on your social, you're post a book that's on your coffee table. Uh, what's, what's on your mm-hmm. coffee table these days? What are you reading? Oh man, I have a really bad habit of just like reading four or five books at a time and never <laughs> finishing any of them. So there's a, uh, I picked up again, like I, I read books over and over too. So there's a book called Detroit by Charlie LaDuff, who's mm. a you know journalist in Detroit just to kind of reorient myself. I read the book when I first moved to the city and it was just interesting to kind of like reread it with what I know now. Um, there's another book called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer, the Shake Shack founder and restaurateur. That's good. It's all about hospitality principles and business. Um, and then I read or have been reading a book on JP Morgan, which has been fascinating, just seeing how that side of life and that world gets down. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very interesting thing to see how like he built his dynasty. And then there was one more, Oh, the warmth of their, uh, the warmth of other sons mm-hmm. um, by Isabel Wilkerson. So that's kind of the, the rotation right now. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. So what's next? What's next for, for B Hodges 1906? Hmm. Development, man. It's, it's, uh, I'm embarking on my first, uh, development project standalone by myself and my business partner. So, nice. Uh, working with the city of Detroit to reactivate uh, a vacant building on the east side. So that's consuming a lot of my time and and kind of mental capacity, Um, but just staying busy. I mean, like I'm, you know, like you maybe feel this way too, like the age that we are, I feel like I'm hitting my stride Yeah, and and everything feels like it's reinforcing itself. And so whether it's my personal life, you know, with my wife and my family or my professional life, all these worlds are kind of like making each other stronger. Yeah. And that's, it's a cool thing to kind of see. And so just, you know, keeping that forward progression. That's what's up. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for taking your time today. This was, this was an awesome, long time coming conversation, but an awesome conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And appreciate you for, for giving us a peek inside. Um, if somebody wants to be mentored or wants to connect to learn, um, you know, learn some more from your experiences and or uh, maybe even want to to be a, a partner with you. How might one get in touch with you? Uh, cell phone is 202-368-9955. Still got the D.C. area code. <laughs> um, and then my, you know, my personal email is uh, bhodges at triberetail.city. Nice. So either through text or email, you can typically reach me. Bet, bet. Well, I appreciate it. And I hope that each and every one of you all have enjoyed uh, this this episode. So many great nuggets here. And um, if, if, if you know me, you know that we're going to have uh, Brandon back on because there's so many kind of uh, deeper dives into some of the topics we talked about here that I think would be great to, to have on. So I thank each and every one of you all for, for tuning in and listening. Please, as I say all every week, make sure that you rate, review, like, subscribe, follow. Uh, let us know what you think. We would love, love, love to see uh, you all drop some comments. 
uh, and some some reviews and on Apple Podcast or even on social. Let us know that you've uh, you've enjoyed it and, and make sure that you share this with your social circle and get these conversations out there. Other than that, thank you for listening and we'll see you after a while. Thank you.